And something similar is happening here in our text in Matthew chapter 13, where a noticeable shift in Jesus' teaching method is taking place. He begins to use parables, stories, metaphors. And he does this for two purposes, in spite of what some people might think about parables today. Right? Parables aren't just some cutesy little story that Jesus decided to tell. He had actual reason behind it. And those two reasons that Jesus taught parables were, number one, to reveal truth to those who would come to be children of the kingdom. But it was also to conceal truth towards those who were hard-hearted towards him. Towards those who didn't have ears to hear and eyes to see what, was, what he was saying. And the, and the disciples ask him earlier in this chapter, if you look back into verse 10 and 10 through 13, they ask him, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answers them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, they do not understand. Now when we look back at the previous 12 chapters of Matthew, we see Jesus is celebrated by many, right? But Jesus is also largely misunderstood. His message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand has been accepted by some, yet rejected by others. And here in these parables, he begins to set the record straight about how the kingdom had come and how it was present in the world with his coming. And so with that context in view, Jesus speaks in these parables comparing the kingdom to a mustard seed. He compares the kingdom to leaven. Now, I'm not a farmer or a baker, right? And I wonder, are there any farmers or bakers here today? Anybody who's a farmer or a baker? Okay, no one. So this is good. This helps me. But I do know that to a first century audience, these elements are obviously very small and they're very basic. And this would have rattled the ears of many of the religious elites in Jesus' day, the Pharisees. Because they didn't, this coming kingdom and the way Jesus talked about the kingdom did not meet their expectations. They expected a king who would come wiser than Solomon and more powerful than David. A king who would exercise his rule over the most powerful nation during that time in the Roman Empire. They expected a king who, in Psalm chapter 2, says, breaks the nations with a rod of iron and dashes them in pieces like a potter's vessel. A king who, in Daniel chapter 2, would set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. And nor shall that kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. But that's not how Jesus spoke of the kingdom. At least not yet. You see, the common misconception for many in this crowd 
in the first century is often the misconception that we have today concerning Jesus and his redemptive rule. And that is that the kingdom must be large, dominant, and powerful, rather than small, humble, and seemingly insignificant. It's why so many Christians in America today are filled with anxiety over the direction of our country. Because with each passing day, Christian influence in the culture at large is becoming less and less the norm and is being pushed farther and farther out into the margins. That's why many Christians are afraid that by losing traction with the culture at large, that this somehow means that the kingdom of God is no longer on the move. But these parables from Jesus, they tell us of a different reality. A reality that things are not always as they seem. And this brings us to our first point of reorientation, which is what parables typically tend to do. And that is that we need to look for the small, seemingly insignificant moments in our lives for the kingdom to advance in and through us. We need to look for the small, seemingly insignificant moments in and through our lives for the kingdom to advance in and through us. We need to drop what one author has called big drama Christianity. I think for many of us, we have a lot of really good goals and dreams concerning the ways we'd like to see God work in us. I think many of us want to be that godly man. Many of us want to be the godly woman. Many of us, we want to have marriages that exalt the king of glory and are centered upon the gospel of his grace. We want to raise up children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We want to live out loud and see our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates and family members come to know Jesus. But because we tend to think that our Christianity be, needs to be marked by what is big and dramatic we often fail to notice the little ways in which Jesus' redemptive rule is breaking through in what is small and mundane. Because more often than not, it is not the big and impressive that God is at work. But it's typically the foolish things in the world that God uses to shame the wise. It's through what is weak in the world that God shames the strong. It's what is low and despised in the world that brings things that are not, that God uses to bring nothing, things that are. It's the little moments of life that are profoundly important, precisely because they are the little moments that we live in and that form us. It's the little moments of life where the kingdom is on the move, where there is small change grace that meets us even there. So where in your life... Have you bought into the misconception that has you waiting for the big and dramatic? Where in your life are you waiting for what is big and dramatic? Is it in your desire to know the Bible? Right? And like a bad New Year's resolution, it has you uh, ready to read the entire Old Testament in a day? Right? We do that. Is it in your marriage? Where you're ready and you're waiting for a dramatic transformation to take place in your spouse? Is it in your parenting and waiting for that big conversation around the dinner table where like 
Pentecost, right? You have this moment where your children radically love Jesus because of one conversation that you had, right? And they come to love the Lord Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Is it in your desire to see a friend come to know Jesus and you're waiting for the absolutely most perfect time to unload every Bible verse that you've ever memorized to share within the gospel? What if the reorientation that these parables are calling us to see is that Jesus' redemptive rule in our lives is actually more often than not put on display in the little humble moments rather than in the big What if our expectations for personal change and our pursuit of holiness were marked more by little specific acts of obedience rather than general abstract attempts to adorn the gospel with our lives? What if you had the eyes to see the small change grace in your spouse instead of demanding the big and the dramatic change that you so long to see? What if your parenting was marked more by little acts of consistent faithfulness and just simply taking your family to church and cracking a Bible a few times a day, maybe not every day, and simply looking for opportunities to pray together as a family instead of waiting for that big ultimate moment when you change the world in that one big sermon unpacked in your living room, right? What if you focused on simply looking for opportunities to be a, a vessel of God's grace to a coworker, to speak the message of the gospel instead of living with the pressure that you need to stand up in the midst of the cubicles and preach the gospel to the masses? Jesus says the kingdom is like a mustard seed that a man sowed into his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. He said the kingdom is like leaven that a woman took and hid And three measures of flour, extravagant, kingdom-advancing things happen through small, humble, mundane beginnings. Extravagant, kingdom-advancing things happen through small, humble, mundane beginnings. But not only are we called to look for the small, humble forms of the kingdom, but this text also draws our attention to take note that the kingdom advances... Over a period of time. The kingdom advances over a period of time. And that we are to endure in our obedience to Jesus. When the kingdom advances in and through us slower than what we would prefer. Now this is, now this is a side nuance, right? This is the point that kind of had me ready for my, my guts to explode this past week. Alright? Because typically parables have one point that they're trying to communicate in particular. Okay, And this side point here is something that I think is in the text, but it's something that's debated by other commentators. Right? Men that I respect and admire have different opinions on what I'm about to say, but I think it's helpful. I think, I think it's here. That we need to endure in our obedience to Jesus when the kingdom advances in and through us slower than what we, we, we would prefer. So let's look at it. Look at the book. The text reads, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown. Now, let's stop on the word grown. Now, as I said before, I am not a farmer or a baker, and I'm glad that nobody here is a farmer or a baker, right? That's helpful for me. 
But I think all of us, along with that first century crowd that Jesus was speaking to, understand that there is a process of growth that occurs when you put a mustard seed into the ground or when you put leaven into a batch of flour. For the mustard seed, which actually quickly, it grows more quickly than other plants, it goes through a process we call photosynthesis, right? Respiration, transpiration, transpiration, right? I, I'm not a biology major. Any biology majors here? Okay, there's one. So you know all of this. I didn't know this until this past week. I thought back to like junior, junior year in high school. But it's a process. And it can take several months or even years to reach its end. For the leaven and the flour, it goes through a process called fermentation. And with three measures of flour described in this parable, that would probably be enough flour to feed over a hundred people. Right? This was a lot of bread that was going to come out of this small little leaven. And so that process of fermentation would have taken several hours or even days before it was brought to its full fruition. And even that word in the original Greek language, the word for grown, is the, lang- is the word oxano. Oxano. That's where we get the word augment. And it means to cause an increase, to become greater, to amplify, or to proliferate. And it's the same word that's used later in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, to describe how the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And this is how we see the seed of the gospel of the kingdom advancing. When it started as just a small group of 120 or so disciples, hearing Jesus' commission that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth, right? And that process has been going on for over 2,000 years, right? The, the reason that we are here today is because that small seed and that small lump of leaven of the kingdom has expanded from its original small band of disciples and it's gone out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and out into the ends of the earth, Right? Grace Fellowship Church is a result of that small band of disciples going out and taking the message of the gospel into all the earth. But just as the disciples desired to see immediate kingdom results, when they asked Jesus in Acts chapter 1, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom? We too buy into the misconception that the kingdom growth that kingdom growth in and through our lives should be fast and immediate. We often fail to take notice of the ways in which God brings about growth through what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. And I think this in part stems from the fact that we, as 21st century Americans, live in a world that is moving faster and faster and faster and faster. And it demands Sooner rather than later. It's why we're ticked off, right, when the free public Wi-Fi at Starbucks doesn't work as quickly as we would like. It's why maybe this morning in your car you got into the fast lane and there was someone in that left lane cruising at a cool 60 miles per hour in a 70 mile per hour zone. And all you could think in your mind was, get out of the left lane, right? 
I can't wait. It's why so many Americans revert to the fast food option, right? Uh, McDonald's or what I like to call taco smell, right? We cannot wait. We live in a fast-paced world, but there's typically no such thing as quick growth Christianity. Not normally. Pastor Mark Dever has recently noted this and said in a sermon preached at Together for the Gospel just a couple of months ago that I was at, he said that a vision that only sees what can be accomplished immediately artificially constricts our views of the action of God and that can lead to discouraged Christians, churches, and pastors. God may have a longer time span in mind in evangelizing and discipling than we do. See, real discipleship that truly seeks to follow in the pathway of Jesus calls us to be patient and to endure, clinging to the future promises of hope and grace when God's good work of the kingdom looks slower or does not seem to make sense like we would like it to. It's why we're called to rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. It's why we're told, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test of time, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. It's why we're called to rejoice in hope and to be patient in tribulation. So when you look at the little, humble beginnings of kingdom growth in and through you, and you can hardly see its effects in the world where you live, where there's so much wreckage, where, just as Jesus said, right, there's been all of this, this stuff that's happened this past week from Orlando and all, all of these, these shootings across our country in the last 10 to 15 years. How do we look at all of that? How do we look at our own life? And how can I suggest from this text that you need to endure in the midst of what some theologians have called the already but not yet? I think it stems from the fact that Jesus not only shocks us by comparing his kingdom in its initial form to a seed half the size of a sesame seed on a burger bun and to a small lump of leaven, but he also points us to a future reality that if we grasp a hold of by faith can serve us in the here and now. And that's where we have to remember that the promises of the not yet kingdom when things in our lives don't make sense We have to remember the promise of a not yet kingdom when things in our lives don't seem to make sense. Jesus tells us the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Jesus here points us to a reality that is not yet realized. He's grounding us in a reality that even though the kingdom is small and unimpressive in its initial form now, that it's moving towards a day when it will come to its full fruition He's pointing us to a future reality that even though our world and our lives at times seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness is often marked by marginalization, suffering, 
confusion, and ultimately death, that there is more going on than meets the eye. He's demonstrating that through the form of a parable, the ways in which his kingdom will move from an insignificant beginning to an extravagant end. A consummation where the mustard seed will grow until it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. A consummation where that little leaven hidden in the flour will become all leavened and will be served as a hearty loaf of bread that will one day feed a multitude. And we all do this, don't we? We all look to future visions to endure in moments of difficulty in our lives. For example, right? If you want financial peace, if you want to get to a place where you're debt-free, right, you begin to work long, hard, overtime hours that you normally would not work. Why? Because your eyes are fixed to a reality that is not yet here. That one day you will have that peace that you so desire. Right? And it's just like beach season, right? When it's only a few months away, when people start dieting and They endure passing up the ice cream in the back of the refrigerator. And they take on salads, fruits, and vegetables with a side of protein-saturated water, right? Sounds really good. (laughs) They start working out and running on a treadmill longer and harder than they normally ever would because they want to make sure they look just right for that future bathing suit Instagram picture, right? When they've got those stupid hashtags like, FitFam and InstaFit and BeachBot and a hundred other stupid hashtags. It's like when a woman becomes pregnant and a married couple prepares to become parents to a new little life. And they start preparing by putting together a room for this child to live in. They start reading parenting books and saving up money so they can have the resources to care for the soon-to-be-born child. The mother will endure over a course of nine months of pregnancy and labors in pain for the joy that awaits her when that child will be placed into her arms for the first time. We all live in this tension of already but not yet. And it's all over the place. The false view of the Christian life, however, is that in the middle of our following Jesus... When things don't seem to be working out in the ways we think that they should, we come to a place where we forget that although the kingdom has come, it's still a not yet kingdom. We come to a place where just like a farmer looking at the mustard seed he placed into the ground, and it isn't seeing the results of a tree, we often shrink down to the size of our circumstances and wonder how in the world Jesus could really be that good. Or if he's capable of actually bringing about the glory of the kingdom that we so eagerly await. We come to a place where just like a baker who is handling the messiness of the dough, we wonder how it could ever turn out to become enough bread to feed a multitude. How in the world is this mess going to turn out to enough bread that's going to feed over a hundred people? How in the world is my mess of a life going to come and one day turn to glory? How in the world is this going to be brought about? See, you and I have a tendency in the middle of the messiness of life to forget that everyday, mundane, and seemingly little circumstances are forming and leading us towards a future coming kingdom where things are not yet as they are 
or where things are not yet what they will be, right? Even the one who Jesus called the greatest, right? Who is the greatest? John the Baptist. The greatest. He fell into this trap of distorted kingdom views. And you can turn back with me to Matthew chapter 11 and see this. Just a couple of pages back. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 3, John the Baptist has just been thrown into jail for doing the right thing. He was being obedient to Jesus. John came preaching and proclaiming the message of repentance and that the kingdom was at hand with Jesus' coming. And then an act of obedience in calling out Herod the Tetrarch for his desire to have his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, John tells him that it is not lawful for you to do that. Right? He's doing the right thing here. And Herod, in all of his anger, where he would rather have him killed, but because John has all of these followers, he's fearful. He just has him thrown in jail. In the midst of John's confusion and doubt in a kingdom that has not looked like anything what he thought it would, he asked the question in jail that so many of us ask of Jesus in our own moments of messiness, doubt, and suffering. Look at it there in verse, verse 6. Or, sorry, back it up to verse 2. Chapter 11. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, here's the question. Here's the question that so many of us ask of Jesus when things aren't even making sense in our own lives. He says to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Right? Jesus, are you the king? I've come proclaiming this message of repentance and that the kingdom is at hand. I thought this kingdom was going to come in a particular certain way. But now that I'm in jail, I'm wondering, are you actually the one, Jesus? And so many of us, right, when we get that that bad medical report, when we go through that bad breakup, when we experience hardship, when we experience persecution, we ask that same question, Jesus, are you really the one? Are you the Christ? Are you that good? Are you the one who's going to one day take me to glory? How in the world are you going to make sense out of this mess of my life? How in the world is this supposed to happen? How in the world is this the way that your kingdom is to come and to advance in and through my own life? And look at what Jesus says in verse 6. He unpacks to us what this kingdom is to look like, the, the description of his ministry. And his answer to John is, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. See, Jesus was big enough to handle John's doubts. And he's big enough to handle our doubts and questions in those moments. But his word back to us and to him is, yes, I am the one. I am the king. I am the long-awaited Messiah. The one that you have been waiting for. The one that's supposed to be wiser than Solomon and more powerful than David. I am the king, but it is nothing like you have expected. Yes, my kingdom has come in this small, humble form. But you are going to experience this suffering. And your head will be put on that platter. 
But John, let me tell you, things, are not always, things right now are not as they one day will be. Trust me here, right? So many of us need to hear that word. Trust me here in this. And this is where we must remember that no servant is greater than his master. That in this world you will have trouble. That foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That not even children of the kingdom are exempt from heartache and suffering. Let me say that again, right? We need to hear that. Not even children of the kingdom are exempt from heartache and from suffering, right? For those of us who have been walking with the Lord, maybe for a short amount of time, and we come to a place where this has actually gotten harder for us, and we begin to question, man, is this really the Jesus that I want? Am I ready to bail on this Jesus? Because I just can't see and how this is all going to be brought to the right place and the right point. But just ask an older, older saint, right? This is why I love older saints. This is why I love being part of a church, right? Because there's people who have been there, people who have walked through that trial, who have walked through that storm. People who cling to the future promises of a not realized kingdom. Because in spite of how it all looks, in spite of how Christianity seems to be losing traction in the American culture at large, the kingdom is in fact on the move and it's breaking in all over the earth through a thousand little and unseen ways. It's in these moments where we need to cling and to remember the promises. The promises, yes, that this, this small mustard seed, this, this growth that we don't understand will one day come to fruition. It's going to be a tree larger than all other trees. It's going to be a tree where birds rest in its branches. That leaven will one day come to a place where it is all leavened. And this is where we cling to the future promises of God's grace. It's where we need words like Hebrews 13, 5. He will never leave you nor forsake you. John 16, 33. Although you have trouble in this world, Jesus has overcome the world. Colossians 3, 4. When Jesus, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. 1 Peter 1, 13. There will be grace brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Romans 8.18, the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. Romans 13.11, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Revelation 7 verse 9 tells us that there will be a great multitude that no one can number from every nation who come to know and to love Jesus. Is that hard for you to imagine right now? 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 through 26, tell us that Jesus will deliver the kingdom to God the Father and that he will destroy every rule and authority and power. And then lastly, Jesus will destroy death itself. These are the small, just a small handful of the promises, the many promises that we have to look forward to as Christians. But they're not promises that are just made to, for you to decorate or to knit on a quilt. Right? They're not just promises that we're to just put up on Facebook for our friends and family to feel good about. These aren't just promises that need to be slapped on the refrigerator for us to look at and say, oh, isn't that nice? These are promises to be used when you wake up in the middle of the night fearful of whether or not you're going to have a job next week. 
They're promises to be absorbed and to be put into practice when you receive a medical report that doesn't look hopeful in the here and now. They're promises that cause us to look ahead with a hopeful expectancy. And they allow us to face a world that often rejects us, not shrinking back in fear or in despair, but with the grace and the truth that are ours as children of the kingdom. We we walk by faith, believing the words of the great missionary Adoniram Judson, who said, the future is as bright as the promises of God. The future is as bright as the promises of God. The kingdom has come, and the kingdom is still yet to come. And these parables teach us that we often need to look for the little and insignificant places to see the kingdom advancing in and through our lives. They reorient us to exercise endurance and to cling to the promises of the future, of a future kingdom where every sickness will be healed and every tear wiped away and death itself will be swallowed up forever. But these parables also serve another point. And this is the point I think some of you have been waiting for. Is that these these parables serve us as an invitation and a reminder to keep following our king in the topsy-turvy pathway and to remember that he comes to us in very unimpressive ways. We are to follow the topsy-turvy pathway of the king who comes to us in unimpressive ways. See, nothing could have been more unimpressive to many in the crowd that day than for Jesus to come and compare the long-awaited kingdom to a mustard seed and leaven. For many, it was received as absurd and outrageous, which is why so many people, when they heard these teachings, walked away from him, rejecting the message that he came proclaiming. But the thing that they missed, the thing that they missed was that in all of their hard-heartedness and all of their spiritual blindness and deafness, They weren't just rejecting this message of the kingdom, but they were actually rejecting the Messiah King himself. Christ the King himself, who, just like an unimpressive mustard seed, or just like a little lump of leaven, the scriptures tell us, grew up before them like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. Jesus had no form or majesty that anyone should look at him, and no beauty that anyone should desire him. Jesus is the king who came to us, not in his dominance, but in the humble form of grace and truth. Jesus is the king who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the king who came not wearing a royal crown, but took the the crown of thorns. And instead of exercising his authority that was rightfully his, he laid down his authority And in the most shocking and most scandalous act, the long-awaited king, this long-awaited king that is to come, that so many were ready, that were ready and anticipating looking for, here he comes, Jesus born in Bethlehem, Jesus raised as a Nazarene. What good comes out of Nazareth? Who is this Jesus? Right? Pontius Pilate holds him up in John 19, and he tells the Jews who are anticipating, awaiting his coming, who are ready now to hang him and are saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Pontius Pilate turns and says, behold your king. Here's your king, Jesus. 
The long-awaited king died hanging on a cross in judgment that should have been ours. To what? Deliver us from the domain of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of his beloved son. This is the good news of the kingdom that comes to us in a topsy-turvy way that we cannot understand in the here and now. It makes no sense. But it is freely offered to all who would receive that by faith. It is freely offered to all who would receive it by faith. It's the good news of the kingdom that causes us to look for the small areas of kingdom advancement in and through our lives. To endure by clinging to the promises of a not yet kingdom and to follow our king faithfully in the here and now. As we await a day when the eastern skies will break. When we will see him as he is, no longer by faith, but by sight. And on that day, may we hear him say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into my kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that in Christ you have brought about your redeeming reign. And Lord, we long for the day when your glory will cover the earth as the waters now cover the sea. We long to see the day when all will confess that Jesus is Lord to your glory. But God, in the here and now, give us eyes to see the ways your kingdom is breaking in and through our lives, through little, normal things. Give us the grace to endure when the kingdom is not coming like we would expect. Would your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Help us cling to your promise that one day the trumpet will sound. One day the sky will crack and the glory will descend. Come Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.